to a pleasure podcast for more from our sex podcast collective visit pleasurepodcasts.com thanks for tuning in sluts and scholars is a sex positive shame-free educational podcast where we try to help you talk smart and fuck smarter while we love to give advice and resources please note that this podcast or any emails from us are not intended to be therapy or a replacement for therapy Welcome back to another week of Sluts and Scholars. I'm Nicoletta Heidegger, and I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist and sexologist, and this week I am welcoming Rafael J. Cortina. He is a licensed marriage and family therapist in the state of California. As a bilingual English-Spanish therapist, he has worked in Mexico and the U.S., and has over 20 years of experience working with individuals, couples, families, and groups. He has a Master's of Arts in Counseling Psychology with a Master's in Business Administration and an emphasis in marketing from National University in San Diego, and he is a certified clinical trauma professional, certified gestalt therapist, which we will talk about, and a certified gestalt couples therapist. Welcome. Thank you. Okay, so what was mental health work like in Mexico? Interesting question. Yeah, so I think that in, in some ways, it's it's definitely shifting. I think that the there's a big difference between kind of like my generation, I'm 44, and and those that came after me from those that came before me in terms of what the perception is of mental health. I think that, that people from my generation kind of like have, similar to the U.S., an acceptance of the value of psychotherapy and seeing mm. a therapist, you know. And I think in like like middle to upper class circles, it's almost like a required thing to have your analyst, you know, in some places. Yeah, I feel like that's in L.A. Now it's like a trend, you know, no one wants to date you if you don't have a therapist. <laughs> exactly, exactly. But definitely, I, I do remember growing up asking at one point my mom about going to therapy and she's like, you're not crazy. Mm. Right. So so it, it was not a matter. I mean, she was she was a loving person and, and, and a teacher and not, not, and she would send me to like self-help classes, but not to a therapist. You know, it's like they would do this weekend stuff where they'll teach you meditation or whatever. That was cool. But the psychologist was for somebody who's like seriously mentally ill. Right. Mm. And what do you think, at least for your family, I guess you can't speak for everyone, but your family, like what are some of those cultural barriers to support you think that you were looking at there? Well, what's interesting is that I think that in my timeline, it shifted in mm-hmm. my family system. Obviously, by the time I went into college, my mom was very supportive and excited about me studying psychology. So I think that that the, the barrier was this sense that emotional challenges and pain, if they are not in this massive way that derails you from your life, right? What they would consider somebody who's quote unquote crazy, right? Mm-hmm. That that they're not able to function. That if 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 it was not that, then 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 you just kind of like you deal with it. You know, do it's it like yourself. A, do it yourself. It's like like yeah. I definitely grew up with the the concepts of men don't cry, right? Mm-hmm. That that was definitely uh, embedded in me, not, not so much my, by my mom, but much, much more by my uncle. It was kind of like, if you were crying as a little boy, the answer would be men don't cry. Mm-hmm. And it was, it was a matter of fact thing. And it, it never felt abusive. It just felt like, oh, okay, cool. Men don't cry. That's the way we cope with stuff. And I do remember like being in my twenties and having to learn how to cry, you know, when I started doing like therapy and I was already in college and I was starting psychology because I did my undergrad in Mexico. And, and, and literally it was this weird thing of like, I had to learn how to cry. So I always value that a lot with clients, you know, when somebody's coming in and they, they're like, yeah, I, I don't know how to cry. And I'm like, yeah, I know exactly. How, how do you, goes. how do you help clients learn how to cry? That's a great question. Uh, I, I think that the, I go the opposite route, which is let's not focus on you crying, but on you being able to to begin to put put words to your emotion, to actually begin to feel, to 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 name what you're experiencing, yeah. without having it to be tears. And 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 what's interesting is that I, I I was a crier, right? Even though I didn't cry, I was like, as soon as they came out, I would like 
when I, I remember when I was in therapy in my 20s, I would pretty much cry every single session. So when I started doing this work, I was like, I'm doing something wrong. My clients are not crying. You know, it's like, what, what's wrong with <laughs> Gotta me? Gotta make them cry. <laughs> I suck. I do get a little bit of, I don't know, I don't want to say satisfaction because I'm not like glad when people are crying, but when they get vulnerable and in touch enough to express themselves, yes. I'm like, okay, we're yeah. getting somewhere here. Yeah. So I had to, in, in some ways, like, like redefine what, what emotional expression is because mm -hmm. I, I was very biased about how it was for me. And, and that's what I found that in terms of like getting people to cry, I have found like the journey is better, like getting them to experience the emotion and talk about it, right? And and, and express it verbally and non-verbally because sometimes it's not tears, you know, sometimes it's just it's just anger or, 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 or sadness that does not include tears. So sometimes there are tears that are not related to sadness or pain. And I agree with that. There's something beautiful about that, that human vulnerability being, being open in front of you that, that feels, it feels sacred. And at the same time, a, a beautiful experience and, 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 and a weird way fun. I think we, we therapists have a, have a weird perception of what's fun. <laughs> 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 crying with people <laughs> so fun no but i very much resonate with that my my dad is from a, a small like farm town in austria and he grew up with that same mentality of like you know just man up unless you're like dying and your guts are falling out don't ask for help you don't need help figure it out on your own man up and and do it so how did you get to a place of then making this your career yeah well <laughs> It's a great question, right? And I think that it's one of those things that, um, it, at least in my journey and a lot of people that I know, I, I, I think that I was always like, I remember being a little kid and just being intrigued by people, you know? And it was not just kind of like people watching. I was intrigued to like, wh what got this person to do this? You know, I would I would see kind of like this weird thing because I would see people's emotions. I was super emotionally aware when I was a little kid. And, and that's good and bad. And and I think I was I was fairly empathetic. Like my mom was a school teacher, right? So I'll give you a quick little story. My mom was a school teacher and and she was a single mom. So we would she would pick us up in the uh, when we were done with school. And in Mexico, there is um, uh, two terms in school. Some kids go in the morning and some kids go in the afternoon. So she would teach from one to five. So we would go to her every every we every day of the week we would go to her to her school and just basically play around there and I remember i went into the principal's office and the pe teacher was eating a boiled egg right and this is normally like very typical pe teacher really funny and gregorious you know and joking around all the time and i saw him and there was something so sad about him sitting there eating this boiled egg like like there was something going on with him and i remember i just I just stood there and I was, I could feel this huge sadness in the room and, and he didn't notice it before. And then, then he saw me and he kind of snapped out of it and started joking around. And later I found out that he like suffered from depression and addiction and he had like a bunch of turmoil. So there was something like that. I always was fascinated by people and emotions. And I think mm -hmm. that's, that's kind of like what draw me into it, even though there's this culture where, and, and then psychology was emerging as a field when yeah. I went to school. It, it, it went from one school offering psychology in Tijuana, where I grew up to, uh, like, like 10 by the time oh, wow. I, I graduated. Right. So it, it was, it, it was growing as a field. So why do you think there was such a shift or just like globally? I think that, that, that what happened is that we we are becoming more aware as a society, and I think this is true here as well in terms of uh, of the impacts of of human interaction and, and how we behave and how we relate. Uh, and and I think that's that's the 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 trauma piece that I'm I'm so passionate about, right? And I think that uh, I mean to put it in, in in simple terms, I think that that we're starting to realize how the stuff that happens to us in our lifetime influences our relationships in our life. So to put it, to put it even simpler, the stuff that fucks us up continues to fuck us up. 
and we need to do yeah. something about it. <laughs> okay, yeah, well, let's do, let's dive into it. Let's talk about trauma. Um, and for us therapists, this is really fun talking about trauma. So if that doesn't sound fun to you, maybe this isn't the episode for you. Yeah, yeah, you might um, want okay. to skip. <laughs> so something you also specialize in helping folks with is is addiction. Um, yeah. So what what do you see as the relationship between trauma and and addiction? Well, you know, the the more I do this and the more I pay attention, I I really have a hard time believing that they don't exist together. Especially Always. If, yes, especially if if we look at addiction in a broader sense of not just substance abuse. Because I think that that when you narrow it to substance abuse, yeah, of course not. But I think that when you open the field and and, and take into consideration uh, process addictions, relationship addictions, codependency, uh, compulsive sexual behaviors, whatever it might be, you start to realize that 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 addiction becomes a way of of, of managing, uh, kind of like the, the the simplest is like anesthetizing. But I think what it becomes is a way of just coping and managing the pain of of, of living with with the stuff that shaped us. Yeah, the easiest or the best way that we know how. Yes. Yes. Which I think, and I know you, I imagine you talk a lot about the, the nervous system, but that to me is people doing what they feel like they need to do in their nervous systems to survive. Yes. And, and I have a very functional perception of addiction because I think that that all quote unquote addictive behaviors are, are functional until they're not. What I mean what by that What do you is, think is the line? I, I think that, that they work for a period of time, but then eventually the, the, the compulsive behavior on its own, it, it, it starts to get in the way of people's well-being mm -hmm. uh, because it, the, it, it, it's almost like the, the, the unfortunate situation, like, like to put it simply with, with alcohol, right? It's like, all right, so you're, you're feeling really sad and, and tired and frustrated. You take a couple of drinks and you feel better, right? Hey, it worked. The problem is that magic doesn't last very long. Right. And, and then you get like the tolerance pieces and all those things. And the fact that, you know, the 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 feelings or the pain or whatever you're you're covering, it doesn't go away. So you need more and more and more and more. And and eventually kind of like the, the sadness of this thing is that you end up with two problems, mm -hmm. the original one and whatever the, the, the addiction is and how that affects you in your life. So I think that 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 if we look at it as a functional way of survival, right, it helped me get through this, then it, it's, it's less punitive and less, less damaging to talk about, well, how can I live without it when it's no longer helping or serving the cause? Well, that's why I'm not a huge fan of like some of the 12-step models that are kind of just cut out the addictive behavior, whatever that might be, because like you said, it is something that has served for a time, this like survival yeah. coping tool. And so I almost want to just get rid of the like addiction term in general and just be like, it's trauma and, and coping tools, whether they're yeah. workable or not. Yeah. And so to ask someone to get rid of this coping tool that's worked for them without something to put in its place that is workable, like you're going to fail. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, talk about a, a, a really shitty invitation that we, uh, I'm very mindful of this when I work with people. The invitation's not great. All right, so let's, you had all this pain that happened to you and, and, and you don't want to talk about it. You want to forget it because it's horrible, it's painful, you know, it's stuff that, 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 that really hurt you. And you started doing this behavior or taking this substance and it took it away, right? So you didn't have to deal with it anymore. And that eventually brought some issues and problems into your life. And here you are. All right. So let's stop doing the thing that makes it better. Right. So you can feel really, really crappy and all the pain and talk about all the crap that you didn't want to talk about. Yeah. I mean, that doesn't sound very appealing. Right? <laughs> it really doesn't. <laughs> so what do we do instead then? <laughs> Find another drug or what? Yeah. Yeah. It's like, stop, stop doing the thing that helps you feel better. And then. Let, let's just be in pain here. So that's why I think that 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 it, that that's not how that that's not the invitation, right? I think the it, it is initially, 
and this is like the, my, my favorite four letter word, right? That, that, that I think we need to hold and <laughs> it, it, it's hope, right? Oh, that's it, not what I was thinking, not, not but that's very nice. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> See, that, that. when you were younger, you were looking at people being like, I really want to understand them. And I was like, I wonder how they have sex. <laughs> <laughs> so, but anyway, hope. <laughs> yes, yes. I, I was definitely wondering that, wondering that too, in the process of understanding. So yeah, and no, I get it. <laughs> Uh, no, but I, because I think that, 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 that is the whole, when I think about like, what am I selling? What am I offering to my clients? And the simplest thing is hope, right? And I think that I, it's hard to hold on to hope. It's hard to hold on to hope as a therapist, not just as a client, right? Because there's a lot of times, and, and you know this, and I think that, that, that people who are not in our field know this intrinsically, we get to hear the, the the words parts of humanity being shared to us right i mean we get to hear mm -hmm. stories about things that humans do to humans that a lot of times that the, the, they're, they're they're impossible to believe it's true and and extremely yeah. painful yeah. so i find that that holding on to hope in those or, or somebody who's just just this chronic relapse phase right they do better for a couple of weeks and then they're back I, I feel like I need to grab onto hope with, with all that I can. And there's a lot of times that I'm holding hope for the client and I'm holding hope for me because they can't hold it yet. Yeah. Right. So, so that, that I think that, that, that hope as a tool is huge. And, and of course, like in my personal life, that's challenging too, right? I, I don't always hold on to hope, but, yeah. but I think that, that I have come to, to respect and understand hope in a way that is very different than that what I believe hope was, mm -hmm. right? Because it, it's not attached to to faith. It's not attached to to this 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 blindness or or, or religious belief. It, it can for people, and I respect that. But for me, it's more it's the purity of hope that 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 it's so so important and vital. And is there any particular way that you kind of try to practice holding on to that, you know, for yourself or your client? Because like you said, it is difficult. And sometimes our clients aren't in a space to be hopeful yet. They're not at that yeah. silver lining. They're like, they just want to be told like, yeah, it does suck. Like everything's the worst. Yeah, no, I have had uh, plenty of clients that have gotten angry at me for talking about hope, you know, and bringing <laughs> hope into the equation. Yeah, well, I guess it's it makes me think of like being at a funeral and someone deep in their grief, and then you just have people saying like they're in a better place, and you're yeah. like, "Bitch, I'm not there yet." Yes, <laughs> yes, yes. Th that I don't do. Yes, yeah. yes. <laughs> I think that's why a lot of times the whole it's I'm holding on to it. I'm not even bringing it up, right? Because yeah. I think that it, as just you said, I, it. it's disrespectful. And, and 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 that happened. I remember when my uncle died. I was in my twenties, and and he was like my father figure. And people would come up to me and he's like, oh, he's in a better place. I just wanted to punch them, you know, because it was like, 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 but I'm not right. Uh, who, who, who the fuck gives if he is? I'm not right. So, so yeah, mm -hmm. I, I get, so yes, you're right. You have to be super mindful to, to hope not to be introduced in a way that it invalidates the pain. Yeah. Oh, that's a tough balance. Yes. Yes. Let's take a quick pause so you can get these advertiser discounts. Remember, the more you support the advertisers, the more you support the podcasts. Okay, and you know my favorite thing to always say, but I'm going to keep saying it because I believe it, lube is your best friend. It is the key to maximizing pleasure, whether you're alone or with a partner. And if you're going to lubricate, you want to make sure it's done with the highest quality body safe ingredients. And for that, nothing beats Uber Lube. Right now, they're offering Sluts and Scholars listeners a special 10% off and free shipping when you use my code S and S at uberlube.com. That's 10% off and free shipping when you use promo code S and S at uberlube.com. And this lube is not just for genital stimulation. It's also great for massages too, and even frizzy hair like mine. Just make sure you check if it's compatible with the condom or toy that you may want to use. For sensitive folks, it's great as it's unscented with no flavor and has vitamin E, and it's free from nasty additives like 
parabens, preservatives, and petrochemicals. Also, it doesn't stain your sheets, so you can put that laundry off for another day and just rest and relax after you're done playing. Right now, they are offering listeners that 10% off and free shipping when you use my code S&S at uberlube.com. That's 10% off and free shipping. Just use code S. A-N-D-S at U-B-E-R-L-U-B-E dot com. Sadly, I think the next product is not compatible with Uberlube because it's silicone-based, but I know you slutty scholars are creative. And you know that I don't recommend any products unless I like and try them myself. And of course, that doesn't mean they're for everyone, but let me tell you, I love the Oh My G. Right now, Oh My G is offering listeners 30% off when you go to iobatoys.com and enter code S&S at checkout. I've been trying for a long time, if you can't tell from my past episodes, Episodes to practice squirting, and this product has helped me to reliably learn how to make it happen, and it's awesome. My OMIG is an internal G-spot massager for bodies with a vagina. The unique massaging pearl mimics that come-hither finger motion, the exact same motion as if you're using your fingers to hit the spot, only a lot less work and 10 times more powerful. And honestly, even with the pearl and when it's not turned on, I kind of like the shape of it on its own, so, you know, give it a try. Try out some different ways of using it. The OMIG is made with 100% body-safe, FDA-approved silicone. This is a must-have for any sex toy collection, especially if you enjoy internal stimulation. And a fun bonus, it can also function as a wonderful external stimulator if you're into that. And right now, OMIG is offering listeners 30% off when you go to iobatoys.com and enter code S&S at checkout. That's iobatoys.com and use promo code S-A-N-D-S to get 30% off your OMIG. That offer is also in our episode description, iobatoys.com, code S and S. Now back to the episode. So when do you feel, I mean, I guess this is subjective, but when do you feel like a quote unquote addictive or, you know, these coping behaviors become problematic? Because I mean, it's, you know, it's so normalized in our life to be like, oh, I had a rough day. I need a glass of wine or like whatever yeah. party on the weekends. So I am someone who also, I think, supports some psychedelic you know, approaches, alternatives to therapy or plant medicine and things like that. So like, when does it become an escape and when is it a mindful or not mindful, but just a fun thing? Yeah. Yeah. Because I think that, that uh, I remember er early on, uh, I I never in my life planned to become somebody that was going to be an addiction specialist. When I was mm-hmm. going to school, I'm like, I'm, I'm never going to work with addiction. I'm never going to work in a hospice or, or like tenantology. And I did both and I loved them, right? What and, shifted? Well, uh, so the the first one was actually hospice, right? So I worked in a psychiatric hospital for about five years while I was getting my master's and all this when I first mm-hmm. started working in the States. That's intense. It, it, was, it was the best learning experience of my life you know I, I, I when we take our license and exam you know how we do all those cases and diagnosis and all that stuff it was it was fairly easy because i had a live person of an example for each one of those 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 mental health disorders but oh, anyway wow. so i i remember that i was getting ready to leave the hospital i was starting to look for a job i saw that San Diego hospice was looking for people i applied because i was in this i'm just going to apply to any job that's out there and I went there with the purpose to not get the job and just do the interview. And when they told me what the job was about, it was like, it was perfect, right? Because it had all the things that I was interested in. There's mentorship, there's teaching, there's therapy, there's all this stuff. So I ended up getting in there and, and it was the most, probably of all the things that I have done, the most beautifully rewarding experience was working with somebody who was terminally ill. And, and just walking that path with them and 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 just it, it, there, there's something so honorable and special about that moment and and being a part of somebody dying well mm-hmm. that is really really hard to to explain and, and it was just beautiful and and life-changing and the next job after that very similar. I was looking for options and I ended up getting hired at this IOP in the dual diagnosis program. So I start doing- And uh, for folks who don't know, that's an intensive outpatient. 
Yes, yes, thank you. And dual diagnosis means that there's a mental health disorder and a, and a, and a substance abuse disorder because it's a medical model, so it's very linear. Okay. And 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 I started working with people in recovery, and it was just this fascinating world that that I I'd never thought about it because I always coming back to hope. I always felt it was hopeless. Mm to work with somebody with addiction and recovery and all that. Because I always felt like, yeah, there's, I can't work against a drug, right? And then I realized that it was so kind of like that beautiful place of humanity, right? That the rawness of humanity of, of early sobriety is what draw me. I come from an alcoholic family, right? Like all my uncles were very, very heavy drinkers. My, my family was a very exciting place to live in where it could be very, very fun or explosive in a second. Whenever my uncles got together, it was like, all right, let's see, how long do we have before the fireworks start? Yeah. And and I think that that's what initially scared me away from that. And eventually it draw me to, to, mm. to that field. Yeah. And so coming back to that, like, when does that behavior become problematic? When does it switch yes. from from either fun or mindful or healing to not sustainable? Yeah, and, and I think that, oh, yeah, what I was saying before I went on a tangent is that... It's okay, um, it's my fault. I ask <laughs> tangential questions because I'm such a therapist, and I'm like, let's process it all. And then I'm like, shit, we only have 45 minutes. <laughs> so I, I think that um, and when I first started working in, in recovery, I started to kind of like fall into that black and white kind of like, oh, anybody that drinks a little too much is an alcoholic. Mm-hmm. So eventually I think that that to answer your question finally um, is that I, I think it's it's more on the client's story and for them to determine that than me. Mm-hmm. Right. Because a lot of people come and they're like, my life's a mess. You know, it's like this behavior has completely derailed my life. A lot of people come in and and the, the the compulsive addictive behavior is not even the reason they're seeing you. And that's yeah, and you're hearing about out. their stuff, and you're like, oh, yeah. that's fine with you, and they're like, not even thinking about it. Yeah, so so I think that's it. Is it's it's more of like helping the person see and make the decision if it's a problem for themselves. Mm-hmm. I, I, I mean, with that said, there, there's sometimes where it's clearly obvious, right? And 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 you're like, yeah, you know something? I think I think there's something here, right? You're you're the, the, there's all of this going on, and I'm concerned for your well being, and this is your third DUI or whatever it might be, and maybe it's time to to look at this as a, a potential compulsion that is getting affecting your life. But yeah, mm-hmm. it's more about just just helping each individual determine if it's. Something that is now at a point where it's negatively impacting your life versus I have a couple of drinks at the end of the day and just enjoy them. Right. And I think a word you used before, um, I can't remember in what context, but just kind of like numbing out. Yes. Right. And so um, I guess this brings me back to the concept of like trauma and the nervous system. What have you found to be most helpful in working with trauma? Wow. That's a that's a great question. It's a big uh, question. It's a big question. Yeah, I I, I think I would. I say, guess the answer the answer for me is like anything that has to do with the body. Yes, I, I think that the understanding the nervous system is key, and 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 I think that I do a lot of education on that for clients because I think that. Once you understand, oh, so this thing that's going on for me is not me being weird or crazy or odd. It's really my nervous system protecting me. Like one of my favorite quotes that I I recently read somewhere is, uh, I'm horrible. I'm really good at remembering, but however, I give an acknowledgement to the people that that actually wrote it. So I always feel kind of bad that I can't say where I I read it, but whoever did deserves all the praise. But basically it was, (laughs) is your nervous system and your your brain's job is to protect the body not the other way around so say so, more say more about it yeah so if you look at the way the brain reacts to trauma and does everything it needs to do to protect your body from decompensating from feeling pain from 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 all those things from dissociating and just basically like disconnecting right? And mm-hmm. not being in your body anymore. And you feel like you're watching a movie 
yeah. to to forgetting, to changing, to erasing, to not feeling, to numbing out, whatever it might be, that 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 is your brain's job, right? So so a lot of times when you when you understand that and you help people understand how the nervous system works and all the little intrinsic uh, parts of it, it relieves the sense. Right. So now I understand, right? And and to your point. The, the body work is huge, right? Being able to to do some of that 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 regulating the nervous system because if we're not, if we're just talking and talking and talking with no regulation, it becomes very overwhelming. Mm-hmm. And one of my favorite things to teach folks about the nervous system is polyvagal theory. Yes. Um, is that something you feel comfortable oh, explaining yeah. explaining a little bit about? Yeah, I think so. So I think the the I love it too, and 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 it's such a such a fascinating way of looking at it. So, so basically, the the the, the simplest way of, of explaining it for me is that 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 we have like this this nerve system, right, that connects our brainstem and all the way our to our, down to our gut, and it's in charge of a lot of things. But one of the main things that it's in charge of is in, in protecting once again our body, right? So, so there's there's a couple of ways that it does that. It's and and when we think about kind of like responding under stress, right? And and there is a, a very primitive way of responding to stress, and that's actually the oldest part of our nervous system, uh, which is kind of like this response that that we shut down, disconnect, pass out, you know, literally just turn off the lights, right? That's the that's freeze. The freeze response. A freeze response. Correct. Yeah, and um, for people listening, the oldest meaning like the part of our brain that developed earliest in early humans. Yes, evolutionally old. Yeah. Yes, yeah. and we actually share with, with pretty much most yeah. beings. Well, and the, fr- the freeze response, I, I tell folks that it's like, you know, imagine that rabbit running out in front of your car and that always happens to f- freeze and stop right in front of your car, right? And yes. just look at you and you're like, what the fuck are you doing? Like move, do something. Um, but it is the unconscious body's way of protecting us against a threat that it thinks we can't face. And so it's like, oh, instead, let's just shut down and conserve our resources so that we don't waste energy. Yes, yes. And 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 what's fascinating that animals, of course, do much better than humans. And, and there's a lot of things. But one is that they, they once they survive, they complete the task, whatever the task was, they mm. finish it would have been been writing or eating or hiding, you know, they, they finish the task because that, that way the event is complete and they could go on, right? They could, they could re-stabilize. Mm. But we don't. We don't, right? Because it's it's too painful, so we keep it locked up. So trauma is like all these unfinished tasks yes. that we haven't completed. Yes. And, and I think that that, that, that when it comes to, to the, the kind of like the next level up on the polybagal nerve is that there's kind of like this this sympathetic response, which is that that's like turning on the system, right? That's fight or flight, you know. It's it, and I think a lot of people have heard of that term, which is basically there's a threat, and I'm either I'm either going to fight the lion or I'm going to try to run away from the lion, right? And then we have like the most evolution, kind of like more sophisticated part of our brain and how to deal with those moments, which is that that we're able to eventually turn it off and integrate. Right. So it's kind of like the, the part that we consciously are able to say the event was over, take a couple breaths, you know, and, and, and you're back to regulation. Yeah. The, I think that the, you got it right earlier. The thing is that trauma hits on that a, a lot of times in the previous two. Right. So we're either constantly on fight or flight or just just the, the, the turning off the lights, the collapsing freeze mode. And and I think that if we're not working with regulating that 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 pre-conscious part of our mind right Mm -hmm. because there's the concept of neuroception too which is fascinating right so so neuroception is it's our autonomous nervous system it's always aware and it might not be conscious awareness but it's always picking up cues right it's always looking around and picking up cues and if it perceives a threat it turns it on Mm -hmm. and a lot of times we're not even aware consciously aware but our, our once again our brain is protecting our body right yeah. so, so it's constantly aware so a big part of it is, is learning how to regulate the body mm-hmm. and, and able to tolerate and, and tell the story and, and, and also that's, i guess where the addiction stuff fits in is like you figure out that okay this is something that helps regulate me for now 
Yes, yes, and very efficiently a lot of times, and mm-hmm. and, and that's the challenge, right? I mean, the, 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 we are dealing with something that's very efficient, and and early on in in in, in trauma work, it's not that efficient, right? That's the reality. People are going to be affected and deregulated and we're doing all these skills and all this work and and it's not going to be always super, super quick and efficient. And and, and, I, and I'm honest with my clients. That's the thing that I, that in going to one of your earliest questions is I'm very honest. And I said, you know, it's not going to be as efficient as the anesthetizing behavior. You know, it's not. But it's also not going to have all the consequences. Yeah, I guess it's that longer term uh, effectiveness or like that research study where it's like you could have a cookie, one cookie now, or if you wait, you can have three cookies later. Yes, yes. And that's the gift eventually, right? Eventually, Mm -hmm. the gift is that you will be able to, to, to live life in the present. I think my favorite thing about the polyvagal theory, um, or I guess about just the nervous system in general that I tell clients is when you're in fight, flight, or freeze, that you're not really able to connect with people in those spaces. Like you can't really form and maintain relationships. Your empathy isn't as great as it, you know, usually is. It's just not a connected space. And so that's, you know, something I try to work on with folks at the beginning of our work, because if you're in one of those spaces and we're trying to process something or you're trying to talk to your partner or explain whatever, like it's not going to happen if you're, you can't even connect. Yes. Yeah. And sometimes you can't even hear people or like decipher their words, or you're more likely to misinterpret facial features. Like it really um, isn't a space for like growth and healing. Like you have to be grounded. Yeah. And, and I, and I think that what happens is, and, 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 people react you, you talked about facial features and certain things right a lot of times uh, a, a certain way of looking a certain way of the, the non-verbal thing can be very triggering to trauma yeah. and you get this the, the, the clients that come in and the, the, they don't understand why mm-hmm. you know that there is this this huge anger or fear response to their partner and they can't connect and they can't relate and and it's not the words sometimes it's just the way they look when when they're upset right that, yeah. that could be so triggering right and so what are some maybe trauma approaches that you've started to use or have used in your practice that you find to be um most helpful maybe not for everyone and of course yes it sure. is work but um what are some of these ways to get us back to grounded to work with this trauma yeah well i think that the the one of the ones that that, that I, I truly love is is this concept that that the first part is regulating and 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 regulating is the first the second the third and the fifth part right so you you need to to help regulate along the way and and, and I think that that's kind of like the, the the basic thing that a lot of times in our field there's a misconception about what trauma work is there's trauma processing, which is a very, very small fraction of trauma work. And not everybody needs to or can get to that point, right? There's a lot of people that all they need is to talk about their trauma, do a little bit of regulation, that's it. They don't They don't need more than that. I, I just worked with someone recently that all he needed was someone that, to share his story with. And he started regulating, right, right away. But, but I think that, that there's some really beautiful ways of work. I mean, EMDR, right, is, is definitely one that, that is very, very useful, you know, and, and it's, a great, it's a great way of thinking. It's a great way of framing. It's a great way of doing this kind of like this, this truly neurological processing where you don't even need to, the person doesn't even tell, need to talk about their story, you know, and, 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 it, and it works and it's and is wonderful. Uh, we talked before we started about the, about a TRM, TRAM, you know, the trauma resiliency model, uh, Elaine Karas, uh, and, and she took like this, this, this wonderful somatic kind of like work and, and framed it in this wonderful kind of like, like the brain scientific meets kind of like this somatic work and, and, and processing, which is doing, doing body work, but, but, but with a lot of, of helping the p- person learn to be able to regulate and find that resiliency place, right? And and be able to, 
to have emotional experiences that, that could go into the sadness, depression, melancholy, or into to anxiety, fear, but eventually be able to learn how to, to within their body, regulate and hold the space for that. Yeah. And, 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 and of course, being a Gestalt therapist, uh, yes. What is, what is yes. Gestalt? <laughs> <laughs> that, that's a wonderful question. Uh, uh, <laughs> You're like, I'm Gestalt therapists don't even know how to answer that. It just is. <laughs> I, I think that, that, well, first of all, Gestalt therapy, it's fascinating because it's, it, 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 it grew in the United States. It was not born in the United States, but it, it was born in, in Europe, but it grew in the United States in the, in the 40s, 60s, 70s. And then it died here and it grew in the rest of the world. If you go anywhere else in the world, there's like so many Gestalt therapists in the United States, it's like rare. It's like, what the hell is that? You know, it's like you tell someone, even the other therapists, they're like, I remember learning in school, somebody mentioned that. So basically Gestalt therapy, what it is, is it, it, it's a relational model of doing therapy. So, so w what it is, is that, that when you're working with someone, your job as a therapist is to create a space for contact and relationship and which with somebody with trauma that's hard right to be in actual contact with another human being which means showing myself and the other person showing themselves and there's some sort of an interaction between the two and in that interaction is when you're able to explore with them and in that co-experience and co-working together the expert in the client is the client. And the job of the therapist is to walk with them in that self-discovery. And that could be done in, in multiple ways. But the basic principle is that we're equals in this. And my, my help is to help you be more aware. Awareness is a bigger goal of therapy. And in that awareness, one of the beliefs that we hold dear in Gestalt therapy is the paradoxical theory of change. What that is, is that change is never the goal or the objective of therapy. But if you become more aware, if you get to see yourself fully, if you begin to, to process the pain and, and, and challenges and you're able to incorporate those parts of yourself that, that you had put in the cellar, naturally change will come. So change is a consequence of health, not a goal. Mm, I like that. Change is a consequence of health, not a goal. Yeah. Yeah, I'm trying to think of like how I learned about it. And I just remember it being like making a lot of comments about what was happening in the present moment and like also sharing your maybe reactions of like, this might be my own thing, but like, this is what I'm noticing. Or did you notice that, yeah. you know, you just took a big breath or whatever. Correct. Um, and then I don't know if this is right, but someone else said that like the meaning of gestalt is like something that's incomplete. And so like a gestalt is to like com complete it. Yeah. So, so I think that the, the, the gestalt is one of those German words that doesn't really fully translate. Uh, and, and, and it's, I think that, that it means good form, but, but good like form. good form, it means that, that an experience that's complete. So, so, so going back to the trauma experience that there are a bunch of, of open gestalts, incomplete experiences, right. And when we do trauma healing and processing, the, the that that is complete so it's mm -hmm. no longer active so it's no yeah. longer present right mm -hmm. so 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 it's kind of like a better way of looking at it if, if i have a cut and it's open right and it's not healing it's always going to be there and and what this is is actually paying attention to that and taking the time to do whatever you need to do to help it heal and mend and then you know the scar is there but the cut is no no, no longer open you know you're not openly breathing right you're just healing i do find it so interesting that there are some folks who already have that resiliency like that client you were talking about who just needed to talk about it and they could self-regulate and i wonder why there are some folks who have that and other folks who um who need more i mean i guess it could be so many things from like you know, how you were raised, the attachment when you were younger, I don't know, intergenerational family trauma, like all this yeah, stuff, yeah. genetic, like. I mean, the, the more I learn about this stuff and, and all the little factors that contribute, the, the more is that, that I that I realize that, that that's the, the beauty of humanity. We're so freaking complex that it's impossible to explain it, right? So, so which is great too. 
And, and, you know, with all of this and, and, and one of the things that, that I'm very, very passionate about, because I think that the, the, the tragedy about, about the reality of trauma is that, that it's, we, we don't, in the, in the medical world, for example, and I'm not going to, I'm not going to get on too big of a, big of a, of a soapbox here, but I think that that's okay. This is the platform for it. it it's this sense like, like for anybody that's listening, that is not aware of the, of the ACEs study, the adverse childhood experiences study, you could definitely Google it and, and you'll find out. But for me, it, it, that and so many much more information, right? And I said, I, I remember as a, as a kid seeing people and, and emotions and all that. And I was always very attracted to that. And I think I ha as I have done this work and I've been working with trauma and I've been embodying and, 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 and experience it and being so present with it. One of the challenges is that sometimes I'm, I'm out in the world and I could see people wearing their trauma, right? We wear our trauma with us. And, and the tragedy of that is that it has tremendous consequences. And not just in our relationships, not just in potential compulsive addiction behaviors, not just in potential mental health, but in physical health, right? The 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 I don't have the numbers, but I mean everybody could look them up. The, the consequences with with diabetes, obesity, heart disease, uh, cancer, uh, uh, injuries, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Th there is. Immune it, system, because when you're like in system, fight or yeah. flight for a long time, your immune exactly. system goes down. And, and muscle pain, right, et cetera. And so there is this, this clear correlation between experiences of, of childhood pain or, or adversity or whatever we want to call it and our physical and mental health. And yet, it rarely do you go to a doctor that 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 you're being treated for whatever medical reason and they ask you about about your feelings about about family history about how did you grow up about where did you grow up right there, there's this yeah this, they're just looking for the symptom yeah treatment. The, 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 there's this microcosmic view of of if, if you have a headache let, let me look at this little piece of what's causing the headache so it, it and for me the, the awareness is beyond the medical model. The awareness is and, and this is something that I was doing pre-COVID and I'm really passionate about and hopefully I could pick up. I I want to talk to parents. And, and I was doing like the, the free lectures to where wherever somebody wants me to come and talk to parents, I'll go. And and my and I'll do it for free. And my talk is let's be aware of our own trauma and our own pain and our own emotional needs. So we could do some healing around that. It doesn't have to be therapy, but so we could do some healing around that because that is the best way they were gonna pass on something to our children that is useful. So, so, so we have this huge responsibility to do our own healing. So, so we're not passing it on. There was this fascinating study with where that babies, infants, read the mom's and the parents' pupils. And 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 they react to that much more than anything else. And mm. there's some interesting correlation between that and addictive behaviors and ADHD and a bunch of stuff. That 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 tells you that our emotional, what we carry in our pain, we it, it's 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 felt, it's passed on. It it creates blind spots as parents where we we are not always mindful of you said it before how can you officially relate to another human being if you're blocking half of yourself so so i i have like this 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 great responsibility that with all the people that i work with not all of them but a greater part of them you hear their story but the part that i hear is this could have been prevented because no parent let me rephrase that. Most parents don't just say, I'm just going to fuck up my kid, <laughs> right? No, they, they're doing the best they can. But but when we're limited and blind and, and can't see certain things because they're too painful, we, we end up just passing it on. And you see this long family history of the same shit over and over and over. Yeah. And I'm not blaming the parents. 
because yeah, it, we, it's a site it's a cycle yeah it, 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 we're, we're we're loving parents but we don't know how to do what we don't know how to do i think so, the key or the kicker is how do we get folks who are parents who maybe are in that trauma space to be open enough to hear that without feeling judged or or having someone yeah. think that they're saying like you're a shitty parent even yes. though they may be acting like a you know a parent yeah. that's not being helpful but to get them to um to want to make that shift, to want to listen. I'll tell you what, what I'll do and I'll sell the, the secret in your podcast, but. Okay. Uh, and, 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 <laughs> I'll write and, you a check later. You yeah. can invoice me. <laughs> and I hope that the parents that there are listening, when, whenever they hear me talk, they, they, they ignore this. I, the way I do those lectures is I start talking about children. Because when you talk to a parent about children, they immediately get on parent mode. So they're listening and they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I need to be more aware of how do I do this for my child? How am I being accepting? Am I being validating? And blah, blah, blah. So the first half of the talk, I just talk about basic childhood needs, healthy childhood needs, what every child needs to be healthy. And every parent's like, take, they're taking notes, you know, they're, they're writing down books. They're, they're totally into it. Halfway through it, I flip it. And I say, well, I'm actually talking about you, not your children. Mm. Right. Take a moment and be aware about how many of those things that I just said that are you're you super willing you? to do were done for you and are and you are doing for you. Because that, that's a much better way of listening to it. Be, be, because, yeah, if you come in and you're you're messing up, right? This is how you're a horrible parent. Yeah, nobody wants to hear that. But I think that if we if we tap on on the parent part. It, it, yeah. Or to it, their and then flip it to their inner child. Correct. <laughs> Yes. So, so that's, that's the formula that I use because it's, it, it becomes an easier way of, of, of listening. Mm. Oh, Raphael, this is so good. And I like want to keep talking to you. I know that we'll keep talking in our, you know, consulting and all of that. But um, if folks are interested in this, I know you have a training coming up. How can they check out the training about trauma and addiction and the nervous system or other things you're working on and, and uh, hire you? Uh, follow you, all of that good stuff. Yes, yes, thank you. Yeah, I'll do a mini, mini plug of the training because I'm really excited because I'm doing this online training. It's six-module training for, for therapists or people who are in, in the treatment community, and it's worldwide. So we're going to have people from all over the world. It, it is based on the Gestalt model, but it's this work with trauma and addiction. And basically is the last 20 years of work that I've done into how I work with clients and that framing and the ways that I pull in all this, the nervous system, the experiential things. And I'm very, very excited for that. So the easiest way to contact me, it's either via email or phone. And my email is one of those like the clinic email that is kind of like long, but it's fairly easy. <laughs> I'll put it in the show. I'll put it in the show notes. <laughs> yeah. So it's Raphael with an F. Not with a ph at in dash site therapy group.com okay that's the email address if they really want to contact me they could just look at, at the information on the post yeah. yes check out the show notes thank you so much for joining loved talking with you and looking forward to more conversations if you want to follow what i'm doing at sluts and scholars i'm on instagram at sluts and scholars on twitter at sluts scholars and you can listen anywhere you get your podcasts and please rate and review it's really helpful and make sure you check out those discounts from the advertisers because the more that you support the advertisers the more you support the podcast thank you so much and talk to you next week